you're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 179th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, we'll continue our conversation about DEI with Ralph Brandt. Ralph co-founded RDR Group, a training and consulting firm that has been addressing diversity, leadership, and other topics for over 20 years. He believes learning has to go beyond knowing to doing and puts an emphasis on inclusive practices that can create genuine change, and he's partnered with Yale University to prove it. His education involved a BA from Lake Forest and an MA from Trinity, but most of his learning was in the field of experience. For the past few decades, he's spoken to audiences in 49 of the 50 states, plus three different continents and eight different countries. He's served numerous companies at all levels, including the executive teams at Abbott, Ford, GM, Kellogg, Kroger, Kimberly-Clark, State Farm, and Sprint, to name a few as well as supervisors, non-managers, and more. He's also worked extensively with healthcare clients, universities, government agencies, and nonprofits. In addition to training and conferences, he's conducted webinars, podcasts, online learning, written articles, developed workbooks, written white papers, and other resources to help others succeed. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ralph. My pleasure. It's good to be here, Kim. Well, I'm super glad to have you because I know we tried to do this last year and with our schedules, it just didn't work out. I'm just going to dive right in if you're ready. Absolutely. All right. Tell us how long you've been doing DEI work and how it's changed over the years. It feels like forever. And then other times, I guess it feels like yesterday. But I was thinking about this. I believe my first diversity training was in 93. So that's 30 years this year. I don't know if this sounds paradoxical, but I would say everything's changed and nothing's changed, if you know what I mean. I do. Yeah. (laughs) Everything has changed in the sense that terminology has changed around diversity. It used to be just diversity or even affirmative action in the early days, and then it was diversity and inclusion. Unconscious bias came into play for a little while. That was a big discussion. And then it was diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have a lot of clients now who talk about equality, equity, diversity, and inclusion because they recognize that there's a difference between equity and equality. And then the word belonging is pretty popular now. So the terminology has changed. I think expectations have changed. People want training that is practical, impactful, measurable, that kind of thing. And the focus has changed a little bit too. In the early days, it was primarily about race and gender, but other topics have become important. We define diversity as any difference that matters or that makes a difference, and there's a lot of them. Even older white guys can feel excluded sometimes not to minimize that it's more common with men or sorry, with women or with people of color. When I say nothing has changed, I would say their progress has been incredibly slow. When you look at the data, most of the large organizations and even a lot of the small ones still have what I would call a statistical imbalance, given the representation of women and people of color in the workplace. They aren't represented in uh, upper leadership. And the other thing I would say is 
nothing's changed in the sense that human beings are still incredibly biased and discriminatory and exclusive sometimes. We would hope there'd be more progress, but we're working on that. I agree. It's one audience at a time, sometimes one person at a time. I can completely relate to that. What makes your company, RDR Group, different in this space? Yeah, I would say a few things. One of them is because we've been in the space for so long and seen all these different iterations, it gave us the opportunity to figure out what's missing. Even the answer to the question about what has changed, me saying nothing, has really made us motivated around how can we make a measurable change for our clients and for human beings? That's where this Yale study came in, because in my career, I suspect you've been asked this too, Kim, but people want to know, does it really matter that you do your podcast? Does it really matter if you do diversity training? Can people really change? Those kinds of questions. We had the opportunity because Yale University was a client of ours, and we ended up getting an opportunity to work with Yale New Haven Health Systems, which was a big hospital client across the street from the university. And we decided to answer the question, can you change people with diversity training definitively? Because there's a lot of, as you probably know, there's a lot of studies that suggest that training doesn't have much of an impact. The problem is that it's just training. If you write a book on how to get in shape, that's not going to get you in shape. You have to actually do the things that you learned in the training. RDR is different because we believe inclusion is not about knowing, it's about doing. And we have moved our practice in the last five, six years based on this Yale study to getting people to do inclusion. The transformation happens when we interact across gender and race and age groups. And there is a physiological change that you can actually see in biometric studies and things. So that sets us apart. We really focus on the science and the behaviors. I also think what's unique about us is that RDR firm has been founded by two older white guys that are identical twins. I don't know if you saw our website, but people think that's hilarious that two twins would be talking about differences. But But white guys are a big part of the problem, unfortunately, and they hold a lot of power in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere. So I think that means that we're also part of the solution. Our whole team is not identical twins that are white guys. We have women of color and people in the LGBTQ community and such. But I think that sets us apart because a lot of the people running these large organizations look like me. It's true. And what I find is we can work to empower people who don't have the power, but unless the people in power make some adjustments, there's not a lot of change going to happen. I love that you said you're part of the problem as well as a big part of the solution. That already sounds different to me. That's terrific. Can you share some success stories you've had with clients? I think my audience might love to hear some of that. Yeah, clients want to know this all the time too. Where have you done work? What's really changed? In the early days, we did a lot of work with healthcare organizations, large hospital systems for a number of reasons. But one of the big ones is that they're very obsessed with patient satisfaction scores. I don't know if you know that, but hospitals, every single month, they're looking at their scores relative to other healthcare systems. And so we had an opportunity to do some partnering with a large hospital called Swedish American, which is part of UW Health now. And I think that they felt very strongly that the effort to try to become more inclusive and the work that we did with them actually increased their patient SAT scores. Because if you learn to be inclusive, and we call our flagship course Connecting with Us, We do it for a number of reasons. 
diversity sometimes makes people very defensive. Just the word creates anxiety and stress. And we looked at the brain and how it reacts. And there's no doubt the stress hormone increases when people are discussing topics that seem uncomfortable. So we talk about connecting because everybody gets that. That's what you do in your podcast, connect with people. And when you connect, brain chemistry changes. You know, you have oxytocin and serotonin and all these healthy chemicals released and you're more open, you're more comfortable. Organizations tend to be more successful. So we focused on teaching some of these healthcare systems how to connect with different patients and people on their team. And I think they found there was a measurable impact in some of their patient SAT scores and their employee engagement scores. But I'd say some of our biggest success stories have been more recent because the Yale study helped us to appreciate that the changes happen when we interact with people that are different. So now at Ford Motor Company, at AbbVie, at Medline, at Lear Corporation, these large organizations, we're teaching leaders and non-leaders how to be inclusive, what to do to make people feel connected. And then they have to actually do it for six weeks with a connecting partner who's different than them. They might have to pick someone of a different gender or race or sexual orientation or religion or someone from another country. And what's really cool And Kim, I know you'll appreciate this, is that places like Ford and Lear, there are thousands of individuals that are now connecting with somebody they've never connected with before, learning about gender differences, age differences, differences in sexual orientation, and creating comfortability that transfers to their team and to their clients. That's really exciting. To me, that is success. You're actually making connection happen. I so love that. I want to share with you just a little story about how I got involved in the DEIB space. I'm a counselor and I was doing training to be certified as an instructor in something called choice theory psychology. An interesting thing is choice theory is all about connection as well. And we talk about love and belonging as a basic human need. Well, I was training with this group. There were 10 of us in the cohort and seven of them had been through all their training from the very beginning until that place. And then there were three others, myself and two other people who were not part of that group. We didn't know anybody. We didn't know each other. So by virtue of basically feeling excluded, the three of us bonded together. And one of us was a black male from Chicago, and I was a white female from rural Pennsylvania. And we should have nothing in common from the outside. There was nothing the same about us. And even if you just scratched a little below the surface, he was raising girls, I was raising boys, I was widowed, he was engaged. There were so many differences, it made no sense for us to even have a conversation. But because of this forced connection, if you will, we became best friends Mm. and started to do diversity training together because we recognized that once we connected and once we actually got to know each other, we had so many things in common, our spirituality, choice theory, the way we think about things. And he was raised to basically hate white people. And I was raised in a place where there were no people of color. I'm sure I had bias. Of course I had bias because I didn't know. It was a really amazing connection. And I love the quote by Margaret Wheatley. I'm sure you're familiar. It's hard to hate someone whose story you know. Mm. So when you get to know someone, isn't that amazing how it changes what you think? And you might say, well, you're different from all the others, but that's not true. (laughs) Everybody's different. 
Yeah, what a great story, Kim. And I'll tell you, because I haven't really gotten a chance to explain this, but what we did in the Yale study was we asked people from the healthcare system, doctors, nurses, people in housekeeping and such, to go over to the university to mentor someone. They just had to volunteer. And we did that to make the study a blind study. They really weren't mentoring anybody. We were pairing them up opposite race, kind of like you and your friend. And we wanted to get a baseline measurement when they interacted with someone of a different race. And as expected, people in first blush, unless you're married to someone of a different race or have close friends like you do, but initially, as you described, if you hadn't had a lot of exposure in your growing up years to people of color, then when you first met this individual in this setting, you probably had a certain nervousness that you weren't even aware of and vice versa. He even said he was raised to hate white people. And a lot of us have biases long before we're even out of school. So what we decided to do was get a baseline when people interacted. And then half of the participants, there were about 100. So 50 of them went through the training we do on how to connect. What does that look like? What are the behaviors? And then they had to spend, in this case, we asked them to do eight weeks. We just wanted to make sure it really worked. They had to do eight weeks of interacting one hour a week. We ask our clients for a half hour because that's about all they can afford. But long story short, they had to pick an opposite race partner for one hour a week to interact for eight weeks after being trained. And those that were trained and practiced inclusion with someone of a different race had lowered their stress levels, had less bias, were more comfortable as you are with your friend now. And this is the really great part, Kim. We learned that it transfers to other people of color, to other gay people, to other people that are younger. So if you get comfortable, and I know you probably interact with all kinds of folks with your podcasts, that comfortability makes you better at connecting and makes you more successful in your organization or whatever it is you want to pursue. Your story is a perfect example because what happens is hearing each other's stories creates this oxytocin, this empathy. You don't even have to agree with each other to understand each other. And it changes people. And that's what we want to do. A hundred percent. I feel so excited about the work that you're doing. I'm not a diversity expert. If I'm doing a diversity workshop, which I do, I always start by saying I'm not a diversity expert. And anybody who says they are is probably not telling you the truth because there's so much difference to be an expert about. But what I do claim to be pretty good about is create a space where people can have challenging conversations and feel okay about addressing some of the issues. If we're defensive, we can't hear the other person's story. I have so many stories because I spend a lot of time with African-Americans. I live in Country Club Hills, which is 85% African-American. It's so enriching and rewarding to get to know people who are different from you and to do your best to understand. You can't ever fully understand, but to understand as best you can what it is to live a different life in a different place with different stressors, different, all kinds of difference. It's just really amazing. And I love this work. And think of the value from a business point of view. If you're Ford Motor Company or your Avvi Pharmaceuticals or your healthcare system, when someone has that skill of connecting with people of different backgrounds, sales increase, engagement increases from team members. That ability to connect is what facilitates performance and being at our best and everything. It's not just interesting and fascinating, but it helps us to function better as organizations and certainly as a society. 
Well, you have me curious. I'm not a researcher, but in my mind, I'm wondering if going through your training and doing the actual connecting, if that would increase a person's EQ, it seems to me like it would have to, which would be very interesting to have that information. We have not researched that, but I would think it was almost impossible not to. I always tell people, no matter how inclusive you think you are, and you pointed this out, when people think they're experts at this, we all have biases. We can all get better. Unfortunately, there's always new stereotypes that come along every single year. The more we are intentional about interacting with people that are different than us, the more these changes happen. Yeah, I totally agree with that. One of the reasons why this conversation is so exciting to me is because of the current political climate, where I hear people saying things like, diversity training is racist, and you're training people to hate themselves. I want to scream when I hear things like that. What do you and RDR say about this current political climate and the topic of DEIB? Let's be honest. These times have become so politicized and so emotional. This is a perfect example of what happens when people get into their primitive brain. When cortisol fills your mind, you become defensive and fearful and paranoid and you no longer have objectivity. And I think this is true on all sides if we're not careful. So I do not think of this as a political issue. The reason I say that is because when we think of this as something that has to do with how you vote, we forget the fact that all human beings have biases. And what we want in our world, in our businesses, in our politics is calm people. Because calm people, calm people. Agitated people, agitate people. And it just escalates. To me, the politicalization of this topic is a disgrace because there is diversity on both sides of the aisle. There are women and people of color and people in the LGBTQ community that vote differently, and we need to respect that people vote differently. If we make this political and you think there's something wrong with diversity, you're really hampering your success as a human being because there's not a business that I know of that could possibly afford to only serve clients that vote like them, that are in their age group or in their religious beliefs. We would end up not being successful as human beings. To me, I just really regret how the whole political scene has just become so cortisol-fueled that it's irrational. We need to calm it down, and we really need to think strategically. It's okay to vote differently. It's okay to believe differently. As I said before, and I want to emphasize this, I think people believe, as you pointed out, that maybe you know diversity training is really telling certain groups that they're bad and that they should feel guilty. To me, this is about being smart. We do not have to agree with each other to understand each other. You can have a totally different perspective and it's valid. And I can have a perspective that's different than yours that's valid. We just need to have respect for one another. I really regret, and I think everybody does, what's happening, not just the political scene, but the whole world. And I believe that comfortability and calmness will help us get through it. (laughs) Cortisol will destroy and damage us. Yeah. Wow. That sounds exactly what we need. A little Mm -hmm. calm. I always talk about approaching difference with curiosity rather than judgment. And when you think your way is the right way, that's a time to kind of check yourself and remember that all roads lead to Rome. There's many ways to do things, many ways to think about things. It doesn't make someone else wrong. It just makes it different. And different doesn't have to be scary. It's actually healthy. 
I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Scott Page from the University of Michigan, but he studies what's called complexity science, and he heads the Department of Complexity Science at the university. And basically what they find is solutions to problems come from different perspectives. When you have a pool of ideas that are coming from young people and people of different backgrounds and people who vote different or believe different, you're going to have a lot more solutions. And sometimes you combine them and come up with the right answers. I believe that the health of our political system was being comfortable disagreeing to entertain that. And we've lost that somewhere. And hopefully we can figure out how to get it back. Civil discord. That's what we need. Right. You've alluded to this, but I'd like to hear more about how DEI, DEIB efforts impact business outcomes. Do you have any specifics on that? I think there's just what I call irresistible business logic. The more you connect with people, the more you're going to succeed, the more customers. By the way, when you have oxytocin between you and a customer, it creates loyalty. That is the chemical that bonds people. Yeah. When you engage your team by connecting with them, you produce serotonin, which they call the pride chemical, and it gives people confidence and helps them perform better. There's all sorts of neuroscientific data, but I also think that there's business data. When Boston Consulting Group did a study just before COVID, companies that were diverse versus those that were non-diverse, the companies that had below average diversity only had 26% of their revenue from innovation because creativity is created in a comfort climate. And above average diversity organizations had 45% of their revenue from innovation. So they were almost twice as innovative in terms of ideas and such. The McKinsey company did a global study found that you'll love this gender diverse companies were 21% more likely to outperform their peers, ethnically diverse companies, 33% more likely to outperform. And my favorite statistic was they discovered that companies with diverse sales staff were 15 times more successful in terms of their revenue. In fact, every 1% increase in racial diversity yielded a 9% increase in sales because it just expands your reach. These are things customers care about, being represented. These are things employees care about when they're looking for jobs. There's a lot of data in every direction that suggests this is the really smart thing to do. So compelling. It makes it hard for me to even understand why someone would be against that business case for diversity. Wow. Business leaders at the top of organizations, they're savvy enough. They do enough studying on this topic. I think they know, but I think it's driving it down into the frontline leadership and to the employee population. I believe this stuff transfers. I'm sure you believe this too, Kim. All the work that we do, it applies outside the business world to our interactions in society and our families. Connecting, it's a critical life skill. It really is. It really, really is. I know I will forever be grateful for meeting my friend and opening my world to a whole nother way of being. I'm not proud to say this, but I share it because I've heard it many times in my work where a white person usually will say, oh, Black people all look the same. And to me, that's like a perplexing statement. But there was a time in my life, and I go back to when I was in university, we had a population of African-American students 
I was one of the resident hall counselors. So I would be there in the summer and I'd work with students. And we would have this group of African-American students who banded together, as any group would do if they're in the minority, gravitate towards people who are like them. And I couldn't tell you what any of them looked like because if I saw a Black person, I just didn't really look. And it was like a disinterest. They're not somebody that I would normally talk to. So I didn't look and people did look the same. Now it's laughable to me when someone says they all look the same because I'm like, you're not looking. And that tells me something about you. It doesn't tell me that you hate Black people, but it just tells me that you're not having that connection that you're talking about. To me, it ties into this political question because we lump people who vote certain ways into one big category. And we're not even willing to see that they're all individuals and they're actually very different from one another. And I think what we call stereotyping, and I know that, you know, that's what we're talking about here. You put gay people in a bucket, you put young people in a bucket, and you just forget that there's this incredible diversity within these diverse groups. All women aren't the same, all men aren't the same. And yet, for convenience, That is what we tend to do. It is when we break through that barrier, like you did with your friend, that you get outside that mindset and see people as individuals. All of us in the course of our lifetime, if we're fortunate and we're looking for it, we see those moments. To me, this is the ultimate. Even with people you disagree with, we can be of different religious beliefs. We could be of different backgrounds. It doesn't mean that we can't connect with one another and learn from one another. That is when your life really does go into another gear. I listened to Biden's speech in Arizona, and he was speaking about his good friend, John McCain. Biden was a Democrat and McCain was a Republican. He said, we would fight like crazy in Congress on the floor, but then we'd go have dinner together because they cared about each other and they liked each other, but they didn't often find themselves on the same side of a political issue. That didn't mean they couldn't be friends. That's a good example of how you don't have to agree with everything somebody thinks in order to connect. It's actually unhealthy sometimes to always be around people that agree with you. You mentioned this ability or this tendency to gravitate toward people like ourselves. In our course, we call that flocking. And in a biological sense, the reason we're not allowed to marry siblings or cousins is because the genetic flaws in us are in them and it creates deformity. So it's very unhealthy. And again, Dr. Page at the University of Michigan would say John McCain and Joe Biden or any two people who vote differently that argue, that have different perspectives, will probably come up with better laws and better approaches and solutions to things than two people who think alike, because that's inbreeding and we don't want that. (laughs) Right. I like that. I have a question that I ask all my guests because, as you know, my podcast is called Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. So I'd like to know if you could share one choice that you made over the course of your life that had a significant positive impact for you. Wow. I could think of dozens, Kim. But I'll tell you, you mentioned that you're a person of faith, and I come from that space too. I was actually in ministry many, many, many years ago. Through a series of choices and circumstances, I left the ministry. My faith is still very dear to me. The best choice I ever made was applying for a position in a firm in Boston that was largely African-American to do diversity training because it opened up this career that I see as a mission. We've been very, very successful, and I'm grateful for the income. But to me, this is not about that. It's really about changing lives. And for me, this is spiritual work. 
And I would have never thought as a kid, oh, I want to grow up and be a diversity practitioner, especially again, being an identical twin and a white person and everything. But this has been the most meaningful work. And it was really just a choice to respond to an ad. I know people that listen to your podcast won't even know, but we used to all read papers. It was in the Chicago Tribune, (laughs) one ads. It changed my life and it made my life enriched, like the choice you made to have this friendship that you talked about. Yeah, that choice in my life too. So that's right. So I hate to say this, but we are coming to the end of our time. So I want to give you the opportunity if there's anything you might want to add that we didn't already talk about. All I would say is that two things. One is if anybody wants help in their organizations with these issues to reach out to us or other people. There's a lot of folks who address these issues, but for us, it's really about getting people to practice inclusion. We've done enough talking about it. Like I said, 30 years of talking, actually probably hundreds of years. It's really about the doing. And if anybody wants assistance in helping facilitate that, I hope that they would reach out. But more importantly, I just hope that your listeners and I suspect this is true. They probably tune into you, Kim, for this very reason. Just making the life choice to stay in their right mind, to be calm, to make connection with other human beings. The world just needs a lot more of that. Amen. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Do you have anything coming up that you'd like to tell our audience about? Open workshop, a book, anything like that? Yeah, we do. We don't do this very often, but we're actually doing some public sessions that people can sign up for for free. We probably only do that maybe once a year at most. There's one later in the month. If they go to our website, rdrgroup.com, they can find information about the public session. But they're going to have to do it quickly because the sessions are coming up in the next couple of weeks. Okay. All right. Excellent. And then how could people reach you further information, Ralph? I would say the website is one great option. And I have no problem with people emailing me directly. And that's just ralph.brandt at rdrgroup.com. Okay. I'll put that in the show notes for people. Oh, great. I really appreciate you joining us today, Ralph. I know you have a busy schedule and I appreciate you prioritize spending some time with me and our audience today. Thank you so much. Yeah, my honor, Kim. It's good to meet you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week, continuing the topic of DEIB with Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.